All right, we'll take your Bible, go to Mark chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 17 this morning. We'll be on down through verse 31. And what is uh, probably a familiar passage to you, one that's known as the, the story of the rich young ruler. Um, what we've seen really th- this entire year as we've been walking through beginning in the, the, the beginning of chapter 9 and now making our way through uh, the first half or so of chapter 10, what we've seen is Jesus talking a lot about discipleship and hitting on a lot of different topics of, of what it means to follow Christ as a believer. So, for instance, so far this year, we've seen Jesus uh, tra- being transfigured before the eyes of Peter, James, and John. And then we saw him uh, having this, what we might call a teaching moment with the disciples, where uh, the, the other uh, nine disciples are frustrated because they could not cast this demon out, even though they'd, they'd done it before. They couldn't cast a demon out of a boy. And um, Jesus explained to them the power of faith and the power of prayer. And then again, he tells them about his approaching arrest and crucifixion and resurrection. And immediately after that, they start arguing about which of them is the greatest. As Jesus just told them about his mission to go and lay his life down, they, they immediately start arguing, well, which one of us is, is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Which one of us do you think is Jesus' favorite disciple? Um, and again, Jesus calls them out and uses this as another teaching moment about what greatness in the kingdom of God actually looks like. And in that passage, he said, whoever gives a cup of cold water in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. In other words, greatness in the kingdom of God doesn't necessarily look like greatness in, in the world. And then over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, and then last week about children. And so, from, from the beginning of chapter 9 all the way through where we are today, Jesus paints this picture of what a disciple look like, should, should look like, what, what a disciple should look like, what, um, what a follower of Christ's marriage should look like, how, how we should treat children. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to a passage that is probably familiar to you. Story of the rich young ruler and this question that's posed, who can be saved? That's what we're going to answer this morning. So if you will, stand with me as we read the word of the Lord this morning. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. The word of the Lord says this, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He, the young man, said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this command, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the chance to gather together and open up your word. As we look at a somewhat familiar passage this morning, I pray you'd give us fresh eyes to see. You would show us what it, what it means to be saved and, and the, the offer of salvation to us. I pray you'd also show us what it looks like to follow you day in and day out. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now, here's our big idea for the morning, all right? And, and that's simply this. No one, you can underline that, circle it, highlight it. What, that, this is important. No one can earn salvation. It is a gift of God. Now, we see in our passage this morning, verse 17, that it says Jesus was about to set out on a journey. As we've talked over the last few weeks, Jesus was getting ready. He's, he's making his way to Jerusalem. He is on this final uh, journey to Jerusalem. And as he gets closer and closer to that city, the cross looms larger and larger on the horizon. And as he's setting out this man runs up to him. Now, we know from a composite of uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke that this man was young, that he was wealthy, and that he was, at least in some sense, called a ruler. We don't know exactly what all that means other than uh, he was young and he was wealthy, and apparently he had, um, had some folks that he uh, maybe had a lot of servants or something. He, had, he, had, he was a man of great wealth is what we're told. This man runs up to Jesus and kneels before him as a sign of respect. And he has this question for him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so we see here that he asks the right question. Kind of. I'll give him points for, for asking his question. Because he wants to know how he can be saved. And he's asking the right person. But if you notice, he doesn't ask um, how can I get salvation? How can I get eternal life? What do I need to do to uh, receive eternal life? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this has led some commentators to think that perhaps his great wealth came by way of inheritance. He didn't earn it. It was given to him. So maybe he recognizes something here about the way that eternal life works. I don't, I don't deserve it, uh, but 
It's something that, that is given to me, so I need to know how do I get this thing. Interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't address his question right offhand. Instead, in verse 18, Jesus asks him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now at this point, as we've seen Jesus do before, he's, he's testing, if you want to use that language, he's testing this man's faith. He's trying to get this young man to reveal what he actually believes about Jesus and about who God is. There's no response that we see to that part, so Jesus then moves on to, the, to answer the young man's question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus quotes from the second half of the Ten Commandments. What, what we know is the second table of the Ten Commandments. He said, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now it's interesting that Jesus only quotes from the second table and not what we call the, the, the first table, which deals exclusively with our relationship with God. You'll know those as the commands to have no other gods before me. Don't make your, for yourself an idol. Don't misuse the name of the Lord your God and remember the Sabbath day. I think it's interesting Jesus didn't quote these, but, but I think what he's getting at is um, that if we keep these, if, if our vertical relationship with God is in right order, that means that uh, our horizontal relationships will be right as well. And so again, I think, I think Jesus is, is testing this man just to see what he really believes. Now you might expect that somebody, when they, when they hear this, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother, you'd think at, at some point in that someone would go, you know, I've tried really hard. Um, I, I've not done all these things well. I mean, don't, don't murder. Okay, let me think. I don't think so. Not this week. No, I think I'm good, right? Look at this man's response in verse 20. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. So we see there some pride and arrogance that's crept its way into this young man's life. Now, obviously, no one's ever kept this table completely, especially when we consider Jesus' teaching in uh, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says that to look at a woman uh, with lust is to commit adultery in your heart, or to hate someone else is to commit murder uh, in your heart, thus breaking, if not the letter of the law, certainly the spirit of the law. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's probing his heart to see if he understands his need for a Savior. Beginning in verse 20, beginning in his response, we see that this man gives the wrong response. First of all, he says, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Nope, I'm an upstanding citizen. If anyone deserves to inherit eternal life, clearly it is me. 
He doesn't recognize his need for a Savior. Maybe he thought, as people still do, by the way, that because he's a good person, quote-unquote, that he should be right with God. Maybe he thought, as some people still do, that uh, because he had material wealth, that that meant somehow he was specially blessed by God, and that meant that he was acceptable to God. Maybe it's likely he was finding this life of material wealth and and his stuff uh, somewhat unfulfilling and thought he needed to add something to it. At any rate, the point is, he's missing the point. In verse 21, I think is one of the most striking verses in all of the New Testament, certainly, and, and especially the Gospel of Mark, where we're simply told this, looking at him, Jesus loved him. Notice there's no condemnation. I don't think this is, I, I don't think it's pity. I think it's Jesus recognizing this man so lost, so in need of a Savior, and he doesn't even know it. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said in verse 21, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now here, what Jesus just did is he exposes the lie that that, that the young man just told, right? I've kept all the commandments from my youth. All the commands would include, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus knows that's not true in this young man's life, and so he squeezes a little bit here. Go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Remove this idol from your life, and then you'll be more prepared to come follow me. And look at this response in verse 22. But he was dismayed by this demand and went away grieving because he had many possessions. Do you know this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark, and I believe it's the only time that we're told explicitly someone does not follow Jesus when he he specifically calls them to follow him. We were given the example of the disciples earlier in the Gospel in chapter 1 who left everything by the side of the lake and followed after Jesus. Jesus. This is the only instance where Jesus calls and says, follow me. And the person walks away. And, and can I, if I can just be honest for a second and, and transparent, the, the thing that most, if I can say, bothers me about this passage is that Jesus lets him walk away. 
Notice Jesus doesn't go after him. Wait, hold, hold on. I, I didn't mean you had to sell all your possessions. You, you don't have to give up everything. Well, well let's, just, let's just start and, uh, and, and let's just do some downsizing, okay? Let, let me go with you to your house and let's, let's talk a little bit about this. And, and you know, may, maybe we can come to a compromise. No. Jesus lays out the terms. In order to really follow me, this is what it's going to take. And the young man walks away. Now, let me say this, this is not a blanket command for all humanity to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. For one thing, this is the only time that, we've, that we see this specific requirement. So I, th I think what we see here, the problem was not that this guy had a bunch of stuff. We see some other wealthy people uh, in the Bible come to follow Christ. We see, uh, for instance, in the Old Testament, we see Abraham who had great possessions and, and used those for the glory of God. We, in the book of Acts, we see a lady named Lydia who is a seller of this luxury purple, uh, purple garments, purple fabric, was most likely very wealthy. She came to know Christ and God used her in a mighty way in the, the church in Acts. So the problem wasn't that this guy had a bunch of stuff. The problem was that his stuff had him. And his possessions had possessed him. And had become an idol. Had become the most important thing in his life that he could not give up. And so the man went away grieving because he had many possessions. And then we get into the reality of salvation. Jesus looked around and again sees this and, and no doubt, I don't think Jesus is arrogant in this at all. I, I think he's grieving that this young man rejected this offer to follow him. I think it hurts the heart of God when we choose things other than, than Him. We choose to serve things other than Him. And He doesn't compromise. So He looks around, said to His disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And look at verse 24. The disciples were astonished at His words. One of the reasons they were astonished is because in the first century, not as I mentioned earlier, not unlike today, material wealth was seen as a blessing from God. And there were people who certainly believed in that day, there's people who certainly believe today that if you live a God-honoring life, God will bless you with material stuff. See, church is full of people who are clamoring to hear that kind of message. God wants you happy and healthy and wealthy. And if you're not happy and healthy and wealthy, it's not God's fault, it's your fault. Something's wrong with you and your faith. Disciples were astonished at his words. They don't know what he's saying, so Jesus, in, true, in his true, true to form, tells them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives us what is 
perhaps the most ridiculous illustration in all the Bible. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And as you might imagine, verse 26, they were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? In in reading this week, it was interesting to see some of the historical interpretations about what Jesus meant when he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. There have been all kinds of interpretive gymnastics to try to get this to where Jesus isn't actually saying what he's saying. Well, maybe there was, it's possible there was a gate leading into Jerusalem called the eye of a needle. In order for a camel to get through, it had to bend down on its knees. And therefore, Jesus is saying we really need to be humble. The problem is there's no uh, historical basis saying that there was any kind of a, uh, such a gate. No, Jesus is saying here, it's literally easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. To which his disciples clearly think it's Im- that's, that means it's impossible. Who can be saved? And look at Jesus' response in verse 27. With man it is impossible. So when the disciples say, Jesus That doesn't make any sense. That's impossible. A little bitty uh, opening on a needle and a giant camel. There's no way that happens. To which Jesus said, exactly. But all things are possible with God. In other words, you can't do it. You can't be good enough. You can't be smart enough. There is no rich enough to enter the kingdom of God. It comes only by the gift of God. Now Peter, as we've said, who who likes to think of himself as the disciple spokesperson, and uh, I think he just can't avoid awkward, or he just can't stand awkward silences. And so when one of those things happen, Peter thinks he has to speak up. And, uh, This is what he says. So, I mean, they just watched this young man walk away because he was rich, because he had a lot of stuff and and refused to to leave that behind. So Peter then looks at Jesus and says, look, we've left everything and followed you. In other words, if if it's impossible to, to enter the kingdom of God, what what are we doing? This young man was clearly not willing to leave anything, and we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said this. This is an interesting response. There's no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is we will never leave anything behind for the sake of the kingdom of God that will not be worth it. We will make no sacrifice on behalf of the kingdom of God that is absolutely not worth it. 
if we leave behind family, we get brought into the family of God. Leave behind possessions. I don't, I don't think he's promising here literally a hundred times. I don't, I don't think that's what he's happening. I think he's, what he's saying is you leave behind basic necessities, you'll find needs are met in Christ. And yes, along with persecutions. You notice a lot of prosperity preachers who want to talk about the houses and the money that you receive when you come to faith in Christ leave out that line. Happy, healthy, wealthy doesn't quite work with persecutions, does it? And yet, isn't it interesting that, the, that this persecutions is listed along with blessings that come by being a follower of Christ? Because persecutions, which are very much a promise for followers of Christ in some form or fashion, refine our faith and teach us what's important. For those who have spent time in prison, suffering greatly for no other reason than because they claim the name of Jesus, what you'll often hear them say is, I had no idea what it meant to trust Christ until I experienced sufferings for his sake. And then the ultimate promise, an eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. See, this last line here shows us that God's economy often operates backwards from how we think things should work. In God's kingdom, it's often not those with the greatest wealth, with the greatest possessions who are considered great, but those who follow Christ that may have next to nothing at all. Those who have given up, at the very least are willing to give up whatever it costs to follow Christ. For the last 250 years, we've not really experienced that here in the United States. We've not experienced the reality of the hardship, the persecutions that come with following Christ. We, We know that all across the world, believers are daily imprisoned, killed because of their faith in Christ. In many cultures, declaring that that you are a follower of Christ means that your family will disown you. In some cultures, even to the point of having a funeral, signifying that you are dead to the family. And yet here, Christ promises no sacrifice. Nothing that we leave behind will not be worth it. And so we come to the question then, who can be saved? Well, on the surface, if you're you're trying to 
If we look at it from a human perspective of who can earn their way to salvation, the answer is absolutely no one. But if the question is who can be saved by the grace of God through Christ Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in your place and in my place, the answer is anyone. That's why Paul writes in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. See, the Bible tells us that like this young man, all of us, all of us have things in our life that separate us from God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that sin is deserving of eternal separation from God in a place called hell for all eternity. But the gift of God is eternal salvation in Christ Jesus. God sent Jesus to take your place and to take my place, to die the death that we deserve, that we might not experience the wrath of God, but we might be reconciled to God. And so if you're here today and you are a follower of Christ, let me remind you this call of sacrifice, this call to reevaluate priorities is a daily call on us. That's why the Apostle Paul would write, I've been crucified with Christ. It's a daily laying down of my own priorities and following Christ's plan. If you're here today and you would not, you'd say, I've never trusted in Christ Jesus, let me invite you to do that today. You can pray something like this, just this, these simple words. God, I am a sinner, and I want to be forgiven. I believe Jesus Christ, your Son, died for my sins and is alive right now. I turn away from my sin and now confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and receive him into my life. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, to control my life. And I thank you for giving me eternal life. If you're watching us online, you'll see a number there that you can text and let us know that you want to know more about following Christ. And we'll get in touch with you this week and let you know what that looks like. If you're here in the room, in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. I'll be down front. I'd love to visit with you about what it means to follow Christ. But if you're in the room and you want to know more, you can text that number as well. And I'd love to talk to you this week about what it means to repent of sins and trust in Christ. May all of us reevaluate our own priorities and ask, ask God to reveal those things in us that, are, that we've placed in place of Christ, that we've placed above Him in our lives. Those things that we find attachment to. And may like Unlike the young man was willing to do, turn away from those so that we can trust in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for this story that, that exposes the reality to us that, that being saved on our own is impossible. We can't earn it. We can't do anything to buy it. It's, it's out of our grasp. 
And yet, Christ Jesus did the impossible. He purchased that for us through His sacrifice on the cross. And now, not because of anything we've done, but because of what He did in our place, we have the offer of salvation, a free gift. For anyone in the room who would say, I've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray today would be the day. For the rest of us, I pray you would expose things in our lives that we trust in, things that we find our identity in, that we would remove those. We would leave behind whatever we need to in order to follow you more closely. Work in our hearts this morning. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.